Hello and welcome to the podcast Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In Issues Up Close, editors of the TPV journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. In today's episode, TPV editor Max Taylor sits down with longtime fellow editor Jeffrey Kaplan, who is leaving the journal after decades on the job. They reflect on his career and how the field of terrorism has changed across time. On both a personal and an academic level, they look ahead at what's to come. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, my name is Max Taylor. I'm one of the editors of Terrorism and Political Violence. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Jeff Kaplan. Jeff has recently retired as book editor of TPV, uh, and I think he's been around even longer than I have. Um, so he's, he's a blast from the past, as well as a very contemporary person to be interviewing. Uh, Jeff currently is Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Danube Institute in Budapest. Um, as I say, he has been associated with TPV for a very long time. So um, perhaps to begin our conversation, Jeff, how has it changed? Well, in some ways it's changed a lot, and in some ways not so much. It continues to be a cutting-edge journal as far as looking for papers on both terrorism and other forms of political violence. The thing that first attracted me when I was a graduate student and published my very first paper, actually, in TNPB, um, David Rappaport was the editor, and it was on Christian identity an immensely long um, article that would not even be considered today. You know, it was like 40,000 words, something like that. It was huge. And of course, very grad student-ish. So for almost every word, there was a footnote to go with it. And David was incredibly patient with it. It was very exciting. Um, published my, he did publish it on Christian identity and the Church of Israel. And I've been publishing there since. He invited me to my first international conference in Berlin um, on the strength of that paper. And I would say if there was one thing that encapsulates the change, it's possible it goes along with that. I did some years later my, the first special issue that I ever edited. It was on millenarian violence. And I had no idea at the time. Um, I was in Barrow, Alaska, of all places. And I had no idea at the time that the that journals um, had word limits. It, it never would have occurred to me. And we were with Frank Cass in those days. This is before we went to Routledge, Taylor, and Francis. So Frank, who was a lovely old guy, very British, very British um, simply said, well, We'll make it a double issue. Don't worry about it, dear boy. <laughs> the idea that something like that would happen today is absolutely unthinkable. 
Um, um, so, so the changes of commercial publishing. We'll we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, how how long, Jeff, have you been book editor? Um, my first uh, my first column was in two thousand six. I was a member of the board um, at least ten years before that. So it's, I've been around a long time. And... I, <laughs> just ref um, reflecting back on what you've just said. <clears throat> One of the things that uh, really strikes me from what you said, which also reflects my experience, is the importance of David Rappaport mm -hmm. uh, as someone who um, picked up with all sorts of odds and sods, not that you were, of course, but I think I might have been as a, a psychologist who uh, psychology didn't exist as far as study of terrorism was concerned then. Mm -hmm. uh, David encouraged me and um, indeed he wrote to me, I remember saying, why is a psychologist interested in one of his papers? So we share, we and the area, I think, share an immense debt of gratitude to David. David, of course, founded the journal anyway, uh, which adds to the contribution that he made. So Jeff, you know, looking back over a long time and a quite significant time as far as the study of terrorism is concerned, we've come from somewhere not even off field, I think, uh, to being Quite a central issue for many people these days. What do you think are the good things and what do you think are the bad things about the way things have gone? Well, I think we have to go back to what terrorism study was in the dark ages before 9-11 and certainly back when David founded the journal in the, in the late 80s. Um, there were maybe, what, half a dozen, a dozen actual terrorism scholars in the world and largely from political science. They published some, you know, just some groundbreaking work. Um, Davids was the first to bring in religion and anything that was really um, considered to be off-center in those days. But there were very few, and so it generated very few papers, it generated very few books. It was very, very narrowly focused on a phenomenon that was a fringe phenomenon. And it was um, purposely treated as a fringe phenomenon. There weren't many terrorists. And the ones that there were, um, truth be told, we kind of liked them. Um, this was the, these were 60s era terrorists. And terrorism was a something that was good theater, but nobody really got hurt um, in, in that wave of terrorism. It all changed with 9-11. And I recall when that happened, um, we were publishing in terrorism in, the, in those days. And all of a sudden, almost overnight, you couldn't believe how many um, newly minted terrorism scholars there were and crowding into the media. And while that was very negative in many ways, the positive of it is that terrorism studies really opened up to numerous fields. Um, suddenly religion, which was certainly my area, um, became central. But you had people from anthropology, you had people from all of the branches of the social sciences and then the communication sciences. So the field has expanded tremendously and what was a, a field that had very narrow parameters um, suddenly became inclusive of a lot of ideas, you know, given a lot of them are garbage, but a lot of them were really quite valuable. So the chaff is our job I mean, as a journal. No. Yeah, well, I think I probably agree with you there. Um, the, uh, 
you know, kind of focusing down a little bit, the one I appreciate that you must get hundreds, maybe thousands of books passing through your hands over the period that you've been doing the book reviews. Okay. I mean, in, you must have a sense of the kind of stuff that's coming forward now compared to the kind of stuff that came forward, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. Is there anything discernibly different, do you think? Volume, of course, but beyond that. There, there is some, but I think <laughs> the first thing you have to note is just plain volume. Um, there are so many books coming out that have terrorism in the title or the subtitle that it's become a veritable flood um, from a, what, maybe a dozen books a year, and just in terms of monographs. You have now hundreds and possibly thousands coming out a year. If you look at all of the global presses, the European, the um, European University presses, as well as the as well as the majors in, you know, the Anglo-American majors. And then we look at the ones from different languages, from French and German, et cetera, et cetera. And increasingly there's a, there's a number coming out of India and Pakistan that are quite good. So in terms of sheer volume, that is change number one. There's all, there are more books than can possibly be reviewed. Um, there are more books than can be absorbed. So the wheat from the chaff is, becomes not only important, but almost impossible. In terms of content, the, I think one of the things that has really changed is, as we said before, the narrowness of the parameters. Um, if you simply open one of those books and you, let's say you have no time to do more than skim it and you go back and look at the index to see what, you know, what might be in there and the and the um, sources and you look at the you skim through the footnotes and see what might be there how interdisciplinary we become is probably the most striking thing to me um, you get a lot really a lot from a lot of areas um, one of the changes is quite physical and this is to me problematic but it's typical of what's happening in publishing generally where you used to have books that were maybe um, 300 to 500 print pages. Now they are very narrow and they're very small simply because the press is saying cut, 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 cut until you know, virtually all of the best stuff is left on the cutting room floor, but you have to come out with less than 100,000 words. And so the publishing has changed in that way. Um, the books have become, while more interdisciplinary and more widely focused, they also have to become much more narrow. And that, that mitigates towards yet more books coming out. Um, anthologies, which used to be quite big, are now becoming increasingly marginal. And so what, you know, what, is, what is saleable, what is commercial, are small um, in terms of word length, um, narrowly focused monographs. Mm. So if you have a large book that you really want to do something with, you go to a very non-mainstream press. And there, and there are a few of them now that will publish, you know, 500, 600 page books, but there's no marketing to go with it. Nobody ever hears of it. So, Which makes me wonder, Jeff, what's the role then of book reviews now? I mean, when there were a few books, it, it was an important 
route of communication for authors as well as publishers. It wasn't just making money out of it. I, my yeah. books would have never made any money. No. That's not. It's not why they were written. Um, it's because yeah. I was interested and wanted to do it. Um, and the reviews help other people know what you're doing. What are they for now then, given the way things have changed? I don't want to be cynical about it because I really, you know, I really love the book review process. And before I was book review editor at TNPB, I was book review editor at a new religious movements journal called Nova Religio. So, you know, it's where I started in 2006 at TNPB and Nova Religio, I started in 93, 94, uh, you know, much earlier. And I, you know, I really love the process. But I think you have to look at what book re where book what book reviews stand for today in two ways. One is public perception, and the you know public perception, which also includes marketing and all that interesting stuff, but also professional advancement. Um, it, to in terms of professional advancement, you often need to have well-reviewed books, not just publications, but well-reviewed publications in order to get tenure, in order to get um, uh, your, have your career advanced from level to level. I mean, you want, you want promotion to associate, you want to prevent promotion to full, you've got to have these positive reviews. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on not only the author, but on the reviewer, because as, as more and more books have come out and fewer and fewer reviews can be published because of space, because of word, word length and space, then you're getting, what I was getting is for the very first time in the last two or three years, a lot of pressure from authors. Why isn't, they, why isn't my book being reviewed? Um, where is the review? And I've had, you know, and what was an amazing experience is to actually have real objections to reviews that were out there. You know, the, this review was too negative and I want to, I want to be able to um, say something about it and have a, re have a response. You know, a book review column is not an op-ed page. Um, it, you know, you, you have to trust your reviewers to know what they're doing and to be good about it. You, you are checking to make sure that the review is fair, but at the same time, you can't read every book that's been, that's been reviewed. We're talking thousands. So that's issue number one on the other side, the commercial side, um, with so many books out there, the reviews do become to a degree important but not as important as they used to be because marketing has really taken over the word of mouth. Mm. This is about process in a way, isn't it? It's, and it's also something to do with the publishing industry and mm. how that's changed and how that impacts on the academic world. Um, there's another way to look at changes, which is, are, is the material that's now being published moving the area forward or is it just repeating because that seems to me from as an academic and looking at it as it were from the editorial perspective i take on the journal that's the bit that really matters i think yeah and that's the question that really cuts to the heart of it um i am not sure that we are advancing very much at this stage 
Um, the, for one thing, the between the market and the field, um, we've become conservative, to be really honest, um, much more so than we were 10 years ago. And I don't think that he, that innovative ideas, much less revisionist ideas, are very welcome. So it's not a, you know, it's not a smart um, professional move to um, push the boundaries. I mean, when we start, when you and I started, the boundaries were quite permeable. Um, the, my, my work was based on participant observer research. So I went to terrorist groups. I went to violent radical right groups and that kind of thing. And I hung out with them. I went with them. I interviewed them in their homes. I went to their demonstrations, witnessed their attacks sometimes, and would unfortunately get in the middle of that <laughs> to my great cause. Mm. No, but, I, know, I know that feeling, Jeff. Oh, yes. But you don't see that anymore. Now, yeah, yeah. Um, what passes for field work is we do interviews on the watch my language, on the internet. Um, <coughs> yes, I emailed this person and this is the great interview I got. Who cares? Mm. And that's, that's passing for scholarship these days. And that's accepted. We've become more and more conservative and more and more hidebound in what we do. That, that, uh, I don't know if that applies to the papers we publish. I, think, I certainly would agree with you that that does accurately describe an awful lot of the books that you see mm -hmm. but one one uh, difference it strikes me from as it were from the way the different disciplines approach publication the background i come from is one that values papers probably rather more than books mm -hmm. and it also has of course multi-author attributions which i noticed in some disciplines are actually frowned on um, mm -hmm. you know if you if it's not a monograph of some form then somehow or other it's not real, it doesn't count. Uh, in the science background, from a science background, multi-authored documents are the norm. Indeed, it would be very hard to imagine decent work being done without an array of people joining you. Now, that seems to me to be something of a balance, a check, if you like, not a balance, a check against some of the things you're describing there. To a degree, to a degree. Um, I would disagree with you a little bit, and that is, I think that there's a divergence here between your, what happened, what's happening in Europe and what's happening in the U.S. Because when I get a paper that is multi-authored from Europe, I'm thinking, okay, what EU project are they reporting? <laughs> uh, um, this is a, is this really original scholarship or is this product to justify an EU grant? And a good part, a good number of the times, it's the latter. And I, yeah, I, I accept that. I accept that. I accept yeah, that. To be fair, you know, not to throw brickbats at Europe, um, which <laughs> I love and prefer to live in, but <laughs> academic academics here and academics there are very different. Publication here is different. Um, you, it's it's be it's the norm in Europe to have somebody write a monograph, which the department then publishes and then tries to give away because it's not marketed. Nobody wants to read it, but mm. it's, you know, the, the department needs it for, you know, their own reports and to justify their own existence. You never see that in America. We live in a complicated world and the funding sources do dry things. There's no denying that. So, I mean, there's several legs on which we stand. One is publication, the mm -hmm. other is funding. And, and they're not always benevolent 
feet, as it were, or legs to no. stand on, are they? No, um, I, I would agree with you that multi-author can be valuable. Yeah. But um, perhaps not to the extent that you think uh, the, the, that, um, you're, that you're suggesting. Okay. Would you think a bit about, not so much where we've been, because we've discussed, that's really, we've been looking backwards so far. Hmm. Um, where do you think we're going to go now? And um, how is the area going to change? And let, let me just add one thing in there. I think you were responsible for one innovation, at least from TPV's perspective, which was the series of papers we published on um, the events around the White House, um, moving us into a more contemporary uh, role rather than merely reflecting on what's yeah. gone in the past. Um, so you, you've clearly thought a bit about this. Jeff, where do you think we're going? Okay. Um, when I was teaching in Saudi Arabia, um, I had, it was at a, it's at a military institution, a military college. And many, many years ago, I had I'd been involved in training in the National Guard there. And we're talking around the time of the Mecca Mosque takeover, that far, that far back. And they would always ask me, you know, you lived in Saudi back when it was the most conservative and you lived in it now when it's when it's going forward. What did you really what do you really love of Saudi Arabia? And the answer is always that old men look backwards and young men look forward. So looking forward is more difficult. Um, I'm, I keep in mind two things. One, a journal always has to remain relevant. Um, if we're, you know, if we're simply antiquarians that where they continue to republish the same kind of thing over and over and over again, then nobody will read it anymore, and it becomes boring for us to to edit. On the other hand, David Rappaport, again, who was the mentor to you know to my whole generation of of terrorism scholars in the U.S., I think. Had a had a maxim which I think is exactly right. Um, a journal or an article is not a newspaper. It it has to cut off and it has to be reflective. You can't just keep oh there's a new event so I'm going to put a new chapter in here or a, or a new section. Um, there has it's a, as with any as you would tell you every generation of graduate students with their dissertations. There's a point where you have to stop and then go out in the real world and do something. Um, I think that we have to be very cautious in going forward in that direction. The events of in January 6th were historic in that they were completely unprecedented in the U.S. The idea of trying to overthrow an election, um, a, kind of, a, a kind of putsch. They are orchestrated by the White House is something that was unheard of. And I think that was very germane for terrorism scholars to look at. But as we looked at it, since I edited it, I made sure that there were historically grounded papers there. Um, looking back, for example, at the 20s in Italy, um, having you work on a, an absolutely brilliant paper on rhetoric. Um, we, it wasn't simply a broadsheet saying they, you know, from a political science and historian's perspective. So it was very wide ranging. I think that there will be other opportunities to do that. I think Ukraine might be an ideal one. Um, 
not in terms of what's happening now, but in terms of reaction to it, if there is a terrorism dimension to it. So there are opportunities for it, but I think that we have we can't lose sight of our original mission. Okay, but just think about put that to one side because that's in a way a that's about how we manage it from the journal perspective and what mm -hmm. we do around it and so forth. Think more generally about the area, Jeff. Where do you think we're going? What are the big landmarks that are on the horizon? Of course, you can't say what are the new insights because if you knew what they were, then of course, be new anymore. I'd, I'd have already published them. <laughs> Indeed, quite. I feel exactly the same. Um, but where are we going? What What do you think is going to be the steps that we'll look at in the future? We're looking at that from a journal perspective, or from no, a no. Well, I think generally, I think one. I think the journal is an interesting, um, orgasmic uh, organism. I can't think of the right word to put it. It's an organism. <laughs> that was it the wrong word. Yeah. It is the wrong word, indeed. It changes. It's not that exciting. It changes as it as it grows. It changes. It it, it morphs. It becomes something different, and that's a reflection of the kind of stuff that we get put in mm. from authors and it's also a reflection of things like the special issues that we might lead or we encourage somebody to lead or something like the 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 the, the january 6th event which was a one-off as you say but um but we in the main from the journal perspectives we are um we receive we reflect more than drive well taking that out of it where do you think we are going not the journal, but more generally. If if this were a journalistic interview or a newspaper interview, the one-liner that I that I would give is that terrorists innovate a lot better than terrorism scholars. Mm. We're always going to be following events. Um, where we're going as as a field and as a journal, which in many ways continues to drive the field. Um, it, it still remains the most prestigious journal in, ter in terrorism studies, is murky because ultimately we follow events and we reflect on them and we analyze them and we put them in perspective and then we try to draw lessons from them. But we're not driving events. We're not driving what's going on. So where are we going? I hope that we're going to remain as wide ranging and inclusive as we've always been. I hope we're going to go on encouraging younger scholars to publish new ideas and new ways of looking at the field. But I would ask you the same question. Um, from, the, from your perspective, where do you think we're going? Oh, I was ducking that. That's why I asked. Yeah, you. I know. That's <laughs> one thing you learn in conferences and that kind of thing is when somebody asks you a question that you can't answer, how to law, how to pass the ball. I I don't know that things are changing. I'm not. I I remember when uh, after nine eleven we all talked about. Well, I, I don't think I did, but there was talk about the new terrorism and it was all different and everything changed and. You know, this was a, a new world, as it were, almost. And certainly the number of people who moved into it after that suggested that an awful lot of people saw that there was benefit in engaging with it, whether or not it was new. I'm not that convinced that things have changed to that extent. I think um, the nature of ideology, no, the nature of people's response to ideology has changed. Or rather, it's, become, it's not 
No, that's wrong. It's become more apparent and more evident, and I think people are expressing the relationship between ideology, uh, their relationship to ideology, more than they did in the past. Um, so, I mean, people have always been influenced by ideology, and sometimes that's led to violence, not always overtly, but it's certainly been a factor in the development of violence. Um, that might have changed, but I'm not actually sure that the things that drive people to engage in political violence have changed all that much. I think we're still looking at the same kinds of forces. Mm. Um, we've got new words that we use to describe things, which I think sometimes obscure rather than help. I think radicalization is one such word. Mm. Um, I think that makes it more difficult to actually understand what's going on rather than uh, help. It pretends that there's some sort of process there and some sense of commonality, and I don't think that's at all the case. Um, but from the politician's perspective and from the policymaker's perspective, it's helpful to try and categorise things in that way. So I guess my answer to you is, well, I don't know that things have changed to that extent. Mm. We're still grappling with the same sorts of issues. What concerns me, and I hope it's a completely unjustified concern, is that as societies fragment, and you see this fragmentation, if you use the American example in the Republican Party, for example, there is an increasing disengagement for many from um, widely recognized truths or from the idea that there are certain shared parameters which allow us to drive forward as a culture or as a political entity. Um, that every every man, every woman has their own truths, and if they don't believe yours, they, they'll just shut them out and um, create their own world with their own little talk shows, their own internet channels, their own um, websites and, and um, forms of social media. What worries me is that that fragmentation will ultimately be reflected in what we do in scholarship and in terrorism scholarship in particular, simply because we do very much, you know, it, it is our mission to understand and to follow these trends. And we've always followed these trends. So are, is there a point where like lemmings, you go over the side? Um, I, I hope that won't happen. I haven't seen a lot of signs of it. But in the public in publications, um, I do see some stirrings of it. I think it, it's probably fair to say, um, speaking now with the editor's hat, um, we do get submissions that reflect that. And uh, we tend to reject. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's often quite, they are, they are often quite naively written sometimes. It's not even, it's not even the disguised agenda. There is some odd, uh, things so, so they they would tend to be rejected uh, without ever from our perspective seeing the light of day although of course given the nature of publishing and the sort of enormous number of journals that are available things that we reject quite frequently pop up in other journals we notice sure uh, so which you know that's that's fine that's the nature of the thing that enormous number of journals is something to note as well because this is a tremendous change yeah um, every couple of days I check my spam filter for example and I'm being invited on the board of another 
um, journal and, or invited to submit to everything. I, I have one that I actually kept that was asking me to submit to neurosciences and brain surgery. So with all I have to say about that important field, <laughs> But the you know these journals continue to proliferate. Some you know that profit driven is one thing, but some of them, a lot of them, are um, Chinese mm-hmm. or Chinese financed. So you're getting both a world of disguised um, ideological journals, um, journals that are purely driven for money, and it's given what a you know in effect if you look at it. Into in total, the number of published pieces that are coming out are manifoldly greater than would come to TNPV, and where we would reject them, as you say, um, there are a universe of places that will publish them. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Just kind of re- reflecting back on my own question, I suppose, and and offering this as a uh, a statement or. A, a, a comment and asking for you to reflect on it. One of the things that confuses me, it's always confused me, and it continues to confuse me now, is the relationship between the little things that we do and the big things that seem to be in aggregate influencing what we do. Um, And by big things, I mean really big things, the sort of cultural movements. I guess if you were to say that over the past few years, past 20, 30 years, there has been a change in the the sort of broad, you, you alluded to it really, the broad expectations that we have of our role in society and the, indeed the nature of society. Uh, and that seems to me to get reflected sometimes in the forces that we all respond to. David's um, uh, analysis of the, the kinds of waves of terrorism in a sense reflect that as well. How would you make sense of this? Wow. Could you simplify or rephrase the question? Because it, it's a, you know, it's a brilliant question, but it's so global. I'm not quite sure how to how to get a footing in it. Well, that's my problem too, because I think I think there are big global things that change, mm-hmm. and little things that we do, and I find the connection between the two hard to understand. It's not just about social psychology. It's not just about responding to group membership. It's not just about um, some sort of social pressures or whatever it is. There's, there's a sense in which there are really big things going on that legitimize, that change, that I think we probably describe them as cultures or cultural issues, and they impact on what we do. And I find that relationship quite hard to understand. It's if I were to take what you're asking and put it um, in a less academic context, then it almost sounds uh, millennial in many ways. Well, it might. Uh, if not apocalyptic. Um, there is, and here I want to be very careful. Um, because my field has always been apocalyptic violence. So you're, <laughs> you're, ter- you're terribly attracted to even the, the first fumes of it. You want, to, you want to be there and be part of it. But there is obviously cultural change happening. And it's a cultural change that we haven't seen the likes of for a very long time. And possibly, maybe not ever. And what makes that, kind of, what makes that um, not hyperbole is the is social media and the fact that ideas that once were very much on the fringe are now everywhere 
and into May, the mainstream media, when I was, when I was doing cultic milieu theory, for example, um, cultic milieu theory is the idea that there is a realm of knowledge that has been forgotten, excluded, or removed from society. But it remains on the cultural intellectual fringes, and the fringe groups would be very interested in it. And, and not to go deeply into the idea, but there, the fringe and the mainstream are always two distinct categories. And while the borderline could be permeable, that permeability was only to a limited degree. Now that filter mechanism is no longer there. So ideas, whether it's something like QAnon or deviant science or any number of strange things, um, the attack of the lizard people sort of thing, you know, they, it finds adherents, it finds believers, it mixes with other ideas mm -hmm. and becomes larger and larger. That's what cultic milieu theory was all about. Because of that lack of permeability, I agree with you that there, that there is a vast cultural change happening. What is our role in it as academics or as terrorism scholars? We do what we always do. Um, we note it, we analyze it, we make a historical record of it. But the question I would have for you, are we called to do something more than that? Because the situation in some way warrants it, whether it's in terms of becoming more active in policy, in, in what my old dissertation supervisor, Martin Marty, used to call public scholarship, which to him was a, was a very great calling. Um, to me, it was more than marginal because it's, you know, I didn't, I didn't think it was useful because the ideas became so simplified mm -hmm. and so generalized that as Kurt Vonnegut would say, they were gift shot. Let me tie you, let me tie you down into, in, into one specific issue. Um, this is moving away from the journal and it's moving away from book reviewing and so on. But it's, I think this is an interesting uh, issue to think about what, what sense do we make of where we're going. Uh, a man I found immensely interesting to read is René Girard uh, and, the, and his the last book, Fighting to the End, mm -hmm. uh, where he talks about an apocalyptic end to Western society. Mm -hmm. How would you make sense of that, Jeff? It was a it was the subject of my very first book back in '93. It was the subject of my dissertation before that, and it was something that I thought a lot about because of personal experience. I you know I, I was there for the beginning of the Iranian Revolution. I was by accident then around the Mecca Mosque takeover in Saudi Arabia and the uprising of the Shia, and the idea that there would be a great apocalyptic change, that there would be an apocalyptic event, left the mosques and the churches and the um, extreme religious 
um, groups and it became mainstream and you saw it in the street that we are making a new world. It's, they, you know, it was 1789 all over again. Um, but history doesn't really end. Is, is there going to be an apocalypse of Western culture? No, of course not. There will be changes, but there are always changes because culture is never static, never. And it is going in a direction that we may interpret as apocalyptic because frankly, we don't like it and we don't feel a part of it. But somebody who is a couple of generations younger would be much more amenable to it because they grew up with the idea of constant change. They grew up with the internet. They grew up with social media. And the borders that we had, the parameters we had, the shared cultural understandings that allowed us to be a cohesive culture that we had, they don't necessarily have it all. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I was also struck by another a thought as well, which has absolutely nothing to do with what we've been talking about. I think you might call it the Forrest Gump theory of professional development. You're there by accident and something happens. I can mm -hmm. also share that, that experience as well. Mm -hmm. Being there when some peculiar things happened and you find yourself in the middle of it, not mm -hmm. having a clue what's going on and certainly never intending to be there, but there you are. Um, we're drawing to it. Governs the rest of your life. Because well, indeed, covered, indeed, that's, yeah, that's, that's, governs well, that's how you interpret reality after that. Absolutely. Um, we're drawing to the end of this, Jeff, now, but yeah. can, I, can I leave you? Let me ask you just one, one kind of final question. What, what are your plans for the future? You've retired from TPV. You're still very active. Uh, oh. academic and researcher. What, what are your plans for the future? Well, what I in the very near future, what we're doing here is I'm putting together a program that is actually become, has become global in scope. We're looking, we've just finished a large study of anti-Semitism in Hungary, which is coming out. It's a normal scholarship. What we're going to do now is go back to the thing that I've loved most in my career, and that's field work. So we're going to right now scheduled eight countries. Soon it'll be 10 um, all over the world. We're going to be looking at in depth um, something, uh, an area that has been very little documented, surprisingly, which is attacks on Christian um, in, on Christian communities and institutions. We'll be looking at two European countries, um, Poland and France, in the Middle East, um, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Israel. And then we're going onwards to Pakistan, to the Sudan, to Nigeria, and possibly to Uganda. We'll be doing field work in those areas. Um, we put, I'm put together an ever-expanding group of global think tanks and global institutions that are getting involved in this. And so while I'm retired from TNPV and retired from Wisconsin <laughs> and retired from many aspects of life, perhaps, um, the, the, what, I, what I'm planning for the next several years is going to be as challenging as anything I've ever done. Age is only an idea. That's good to hear, Jeff. And uh, that's probably the right note to end on, isn't it? Thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. And 
Once again, Lena, thank you. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening, and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast.